Well, good evening, everybody, and Merry Christmas. Thank you so much for joining us here today. We're really excited about Christmas. We love it. We love Christmas Eve. We love the Christmas Eve service. We had a great service earlier today already, and we're so excited to have you here with us as well to celebrate what Jesus did for us in coming to this earth and living life here among us and then redeeming us on top of all of that. We're in a series right now, a little mini-series called The Arrival, and we're going to continue that and sort of wrap that up today. And one of the things we've been doing is kind trying to kind of take a behind-the-scenes look at some of the aspects of Christmas, of the Advent, the arrival of our Savior, the first, the first Advent. And what happened behind the scenes with the star? Kevin talked about that a couple of weeks ago with Joseph and Mary. And today, we're going to look at another aspect of Jesus coming and what it all means to us as he is the Messiah. But if you're new, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for joining us here tonight. I hope you do have a wonderful Christmas Eve and Christmas Day tomorrow. Tonight, as we talk about this, I want to start off with, with a, a brief story. Um, not really a story, just a little bit about me. I actually really have always enjoyed puzzles. And when I was growing up, um, I, always, I always loved puzzles. I had lots of different puzzles, many different kinds of puzzles, including some of the 3D ones that you could put together and they'd form some kind of a building or something or other like that. Or there were some of them where there were different layers that you had to put in order to make some kind of person's head or shape or something like that. And the, and the ones that you had to pull things apart, you know, in a certain way and figure out how can I get this apart or how can I put this back together. I loved puzzles. And our whole family loved puzzles. My mom loves puzzles. Every year we would have some puzzle that we would try to put together as a family. There'd be a table that would be put out somewhere, and on half that table would be dumped all the pieces, some thousand-piece puzzle, and then on the other half of the table would try to fit it all together. And it might take us a few weeks. It might take us longer than that. If we're lucky, we get it done by Christmas time. But every time somebody's bored or has a, some free time or whatever, we just walk over and try to start fitting some puzzle pieces together. So one year, we got a puzzle that was based on a Norman Rockwell painting. It was this exact puzzle right there, the doctor and the baby with the doll. And we thought, okay, great, let's try to put this together. What we didn't realize is once we got it out on the table, the puzzle actually looked more like this. And so we, that was our longest time. That has the record in our family for the longest time it's taken to actually complete a puzzle, victories and celebrations when it was finally done. And it's just an just unbelievable amount of just white puzzle pieces that you had to try to fit together. And the thing about puzzles is that when you don't have an image to work from, when you don't have a clear picture of what the puzzle is supposed to be, when you don't have a cover image of what the puzzle is supposed to be, it's incredibly hard to know how anything fits together. In fact, you can go on Amazon today and you can buy what are called mystery puzzles where the picture on the box is not what the puzzle is. And so you have to fit together a thousand pieces having no idea what you're trying to put together. So it can be a ton of fun. I highly encourage you to do it. I'm not going to, but I would encourage you to and, and just see how it goes. But that's the thing with puzzles. Unless you have an idea of what the puzzle is supposed to be or the solution, it can be incredibly frustrating. It's all a mystery. Like, what is this supposed to do? Well, the Bible in many ways is like a puzzle, a really unbelievable puzzle with tens of thousands of pieces that not only do they all fit together, but, but they even like cross-reference each other in different amazing ways. They connect to each other in ways that you wouldn't expect. Something from the last book of the Bible in Revelation will connect back to the first book of the Bible in Genesis. And it's like this elaborate 4D kind of puzzle that just all fits together in ways that it's sometimes hard for us to understand. And it was certainly hard 
for people in the Old Testament times to understand. And in fact, I would say it was much, much harder for them. They had all kinds of pieces of the puzzle, lots of different pieces from the prophets delivered from God through the prophets and the authors of the books of the, of the Old Testament. They had these pieces, but they didn't know how it all fit together. It was just an incredible puzzle to them. We have the advantage of looking back now, thousands of years later, having far more revealed to us that we can look back and start to see, maybe not completely, but start to see a much better picture of how the puzzle fits together. And this is still unfolding. God is still doing things in this world, and he still has things to do in the future. But we have such a different vantage point than they did back in the days of the Old Testament. So it was an incredible mystery to them, and all these prophetic puzzle pieces that they had, how do they all fit together, and what sense can we make of these? And some of them seem very confusing. For instance, uh, the Messiah in particular was a major theme of prophecy. And it's the birth of the Messiah that we celebrate tomorrow. But this is a huge mystery in prophecy for hundreds and hundreds of years, especially because there were certain prophecies about the Messiah that included things like him being betrayed and him suffering and him dying. And how could a Messiah suffer and die? Isn't the Messiah supposed to be victorious? Isn't the Messiah the one that's going to come as a conquering hero to free us and, and, and release Israel from any kind of captivity and bondage that she's in and just free everyone? And won't this have to be a, a wonderful, strong, powerful, mighty person who's just going to completely redeem all of the people? And how could, how could there be death and suffering and betrayal with a person like that, with a Messiah? How is that even possible? This was a, a confusing thing to the people in Old Testament days. And Peter actually wrote about this in in 1 Peter. He said, this salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They were prophesying about it and they were writing these things down and they didn't fully understand it at the time. They wondered what time or situation the spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterward. What could that possibly mean? Doesn't this seem like it couldn't, it couldn't be the Messiah that we think of if there's going to be this great suffering, but then that's going to be followed by great glory. What could it mean? Today, what I want to do is take us through a little journey of Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. And that's not something we often necessarily do on Christmas Eve, but I just, I just want to pull back the curtain a little bit and look behind the scenes. We're going to celebrate tomorrow, and you're probably going to have gifts, and you'll certainly have great food, and hopefully you'll have good times with family and friends, but we don't want to forget the reason why we celebrate and, and the hundreds of years of preparation that led up to this moment that we celebrate tomorrow. It's really incredible. And I just want you and I to take a moment to appreciate what God has done. So we're going to go through the Old Testament and we're going to use something as a bit of a guide or a visual aid that Kevin introduced a couple of weeks ago when he kicked off this mini-series. And it's this visual representation of all of the cross-references or many of the cross-references in the Bible. There's about 65,000 represented up there. And what you can see here is, is all of the books of the Bible from Genesis over here all the way over to Revelation. And, and I had to make these, uh, these books of the Bible very small in some cases to fit them all. You can see the New Testament books over here. Some of them get very small at the end of the Old Testament. The bars here are all representative of chapters of the Bible. And the longer the bar, the longer the chapter. So that's how it's set up. 
Now, the Bible is, is 66 book, different books, all pieced together, written by about 40 different writers over a span of about 1,500 years. And yet, there is incredible consistency and cohesiveness from the first book all the way to the last book and everywhere in between. Look at these arcs. These all represent connections between different parts of the Bible and how the Bible just fits together like this incredible, elaborate puzzle. Now you can imagine if you lived in the Old Testament times and you had access to only everything before this part right here, there are a lot of lines that are left incomplete. There are a lot of lines, thousands, tens of thousands of lines that start over here and end over here. But if you're missing this whole section right here, you are missing a ton of the puzzle. You're not able to see the full picture. I want to give you a sense of that today as we walk through this and kind of use this as a visual aid for us as we look at eight different pieces of prophecy puzzle and how they were fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Let me give you the first piece. The first piece is the place. The place. This is in Micah 5.2. So if you, if you look up here, Micah is in this little section right here. Right in there is Micah. It's, hard, it's impossible to see because of how small the words have to be. But Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel, talking about the Messiah here, whose origins are in the distant past. So there's some acknowledgement that the Messiah is going to have some ancient origins and yet come from Bethlehem, this little town whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. And then he says, the people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then at last, his fellow countrymen, so the, the Messiah, the ruler, will be one of them. His fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land. So what is going on here? Well, to the people who originally read and heard these words, it probably very, very confusing. Why would the Messiah have any connection to a woman in labor giving birth? And of course, you all know the reason for that. But what we learn from this puzzle piece is that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem, a little, little village, a little town. Why would a great ruler come from there? and have some connection to a woman in labor giving birth. What's the second piece of the puzzle? The messenger. This is from Malachi, which is right over here, the last book in the Old Testament, right before you get to Matthew. There's 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. And Malachi says, The messenger of the covenant, whom you look for so eagerly, is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Look, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. And then over in Isaiah, Isaiah says, listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness. Clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. There's going to be someone, the prophets say, who will come before the Messiah and will shout in the wilderness and, and prepare people's hearts for the coming of the Messiah. And so we get from this that there will be someone preceding the Messiah, shouting in the wilderness, preparing people for his arrival. Piece number three, the parade. 
Zechariah talks about this in Zechariah 9. He says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. This whole passage is about the Messiah here. Rejoice, shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. That's one of the ways they referred to the future Messiah. He would be a king. He is righteous and victorious. Yet, here's a contradiction. He's also humble. He's righteous. He's victorious. He's a winner, but he's humble. How is he humble? He's riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And so the Messiah will come into Jerusalem riding on a young donkey. He'll come in as a victorious king, but riding on a young donkey. That's piece number three. Piece number four, the price. Also in Zechariah, just a couple chapters later, this prophet says, I said to that, well, let me set this up first because this isn't going to make sense unless I set it up. So Zechariah in these chapters is acting out uh, what it's going to be like for God to come to his people. And so he's not only giving prophecy, but he's also taking certain actions among the people to symbolize what is going to happen and sort of make it plain to people that God is doing something here. He's going to do something in the future. And it's going to have some connection to these things. Now, to the people watching this, it must have seemed absurd. Like, why are you doing this, Zechariah? You're supposed to be this prophet of God, and you're acting out these strange things, doing these strange things. Why is it? Only looking back can you see the intention of all of them. One of the things Zechariah did as a part of this that God told him to do, God told him to go and basically become a shepherd and take over a flock of sheep. And that honestly didn't end so well. And and when that all worked out, he was supposed to go and ask what he was worth to the people. What was the value that they placed on him? Here's what he says. I said to them, if you like, give me my wages, whatever I am worth, but only if you want to. So they counted out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. What's happening here is symbolism depicting the the way God will eventually come to his people, take the form of the shepherd, and yet his work will be valued at 30 pieces of silver by the people. Very, very interesting piece of prophecy here. The Messiah's price will be 30 pieces of silver. The very next verse gives us the next piece, piece number five, called the potter's field. Zechariah says, the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. So this is the 30 pieces of silver. And now God is telling Zechariah, now that they have paid you this 30 pieces of silver, throw it to the potter, this magnificent summit which they valued me. So I took the 30 coins and threw them to the potter in the temple of the Lord. And so there's something here that's being depicted that's going to happen with 30 pieces of silver being the price that the Messiah is valued at. And then those 30 pieces of silver being thrown down in the temple and given to a potter. What a confusing set of prophecies. How on earth could you make sense of all of this if you just read this right after it happened? It almost seems like, how could this make any sense at all? But we're going to keep moving and piece it all together in a little bit. Piece number six. Piece number six is the silence. Isaiah 53 says he was oppressed and treated harshly. This is talking about the Messiah. This whole section here is about the Messiah. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Now, this is, this is not at all what you would expect from a Messiah. In fact, why wouldn't a Messiah get up and say, you can't do this to me. Do you know who I am? How, how dare you oppress me? How dare you treat me this way? How dare you lead me to the slaughter? I'm, I'm the Messiah. I'm the chosen one. And Isaiah is prophesying here that some, in some contradictory way, the Messiah will be led like a lamb to the slaughter. He won't open his mouth. He'll be silent even as he is accused. He won't defend himself. So the Messiah will be silent before his persecutors. P 
Piece number seven, the piercing. Back in Zechariah chapter 12, he says, Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David and on the people of Jerusalem. And, and what, this will happen after what we're about to read. They will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as an only son. In other words, the, the one who they've already pierced, they will now have a spirit of grace and prayer. So this is the family of David, the people of Jerusalem, who have pierced the Messiah. And they will later recognize it and grieve for him as an only son. They will grieve bitterly for him as a firstborn son who has died. David also wrote about this in Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm. He said, my enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. And so our next piece of this prophetic puzzle is that the Messiah will be pierced in his hands and in his feet. Such a strange thing to say about the one who is supposed to come and redeem you and restore you and, and save you, that he would be pierced in his hands and his feet by the people of David, by the people of Jerusalem. It doesn't make any sense. But let me show you one more piece. Piece number eight, the criminals. Back to Isaiah. Isaiah writes about the Messiah. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because... He exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels or criminals. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels or criminals. Isn't it interesting that Isaiah says that this, this Messiah will be honored not because he overcame everyone else, not because he killed all the enemies, but because he actually faced death himself. And in fact, at some point, somehow, though he was righteous, was counted among the criminals. And so the Messiah will be joined with criminals and will be executed. Now, for these eight prophetic puzzle pieces of scripture, I have given you one or two scripture references each. There are more. There are more Old Testament prophecies that say the same types of things in here. And I won't take the time to go through all of those. These are just examples of them. But now what I want to do is fast forward to the Gospels and let's see how Jesus fulfills each of these eight prophecies. We'll do four at a time. Jesus was born in what town? In Bethlehem, just as the prophecy said. And he, he didn't come, even though he was God, he didn't come with a chariot of, of fire and angels leading the way and a grand processional. No, he came in the most humble way possible. He didn't, he didn't have to come to us like that, but he came like a little baby. He came being born. The woman in labor giving birth signaled an end to this period of separation between when God was involved with his people when he took his favor away from them and then when he stepped back in. It was signaled, just as the prophecy said, by a woman in labor giving birth. Jesus was preceded by who? John the Baptist, who came before him, and, and he went out into the wilderness, and he shouted, and he preached, and he said, prepare the way for the Lord. He told the people the Messiah is coming, and then when he actually saw him, his followers, many of them left and then followed Jesus, followed the Messiah. He prepared the way for Jesus to come. Jesus entered into Jerusalem riding on what? On a donkey just as the prophecy said. And he came in as a, as a king, as a victorious king. The people greeted him with the palm branches and they were shouting his name and they were so excited. And they said, Hosanna. And, and they thought that this was going to be the moment when maybe the Messiah was going to come and was going to overthrow Rome and, and it was going to finally free them. 
They had a misunderstanding about what he was there to do and how he was going to free them. But just as the prophecy said, he came in like a king riding on a donkey. He was given a king's welcome, but rode on a humble donkey. Jesus was betrayed by who? By Judas Iscariot. For how much? For 30 pieces of silver. Now here's maybe what's most amazing to me. Judas Iscariot, after he realized what he had done, he tried to give the money back, didn't he? He went back to the temple where, where he had received funds to betray Jesus, those 30 pieces of silver. He goes back into the temple, and what does he do with the money? Throws it down on the temple floor. And the priests, they're looking at this, and they're like, well, what are we going to do with this money here? We can't leave it here. But somehow they had somewhat of a sense of, we can't just take this money and go put it with the rest of the temple funds because it's blood money. Now, that's some strange bit of hypocrisy there because they were the ones that gave the blood money to Judas that he was now giving back to them. Why it made a difference to them, why it was okay to take temple funds to pay for the betrayal of Jesus, but not okay to then put them back, I do not know. But you know what they did with the money? They went and gave it to a potter to purchase his field to be used as a burial ground for criminals in the future. And so the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the Messiah, was thrown down on the temple floor, gathered up and given to the potter just as the prophecy predicted. Jesus was falsely accused by many, many people, but he did not defend himself. He remained silent in the face of numerous accusations. Even when he was tortured, even when he was beaten, he did not defend himself. Peter tried to do it for him, right? Peter drew his sword, cut off the ear of the soldier, and Jesus stopped him. And Jesus said, I could call down tens of thousands of angels if I wanted to to protect me. He could have defended himself, but he didn't. Just as the prophecy said, the Messiah would be like a lamb led to the slaughter, being silent before his accusers. As Jesus was attached to the cross, they pounded nails in his hands and his feet. They pierced him in Jerusalem, just as the prophecy said. And then they lifted him up between two criminals to die on that cross, just as the prophecy said. Here's my question for you. What are the odds? What are the odds of those eight prophecies coming true with one person? What are the odds? What are the chances that that could possibly happen? Those eight unbelievable things. When you think about all the ways to die, the cross doesn't seem like a super common one. It was certainly more common back then, but still, it's not the most common one. But not only that you'd die on the cross, but the Messiah would have his hands and feet pierced in the process and would basically go there willingly and not put up a fight, even when he was beaten and falsely accused. What are the odds? What are the odds that that person the same person that would die that way would come from this little village of Bethlehem, this little random tiny village of Bethlehem. What are the odds? I mean, they're incredible. Thankfully, someone much smarter than me actually figured this out. A professor of mathematics took the time, it must have been an incredible amount of time, to figure out what are the odds, and he had a panel of other mathematicians evaluate his work and confirm that it was a sound approach to figuring out the chances of something happened, the, the probabilities of it. And he worked out what are the odds of any one person throughout human history having fulfilled these eight prophecies. Here they are. It's one 
in 10 to the 17th power. As my son watched me put together this message this week, he was trying to figure out like, okay, millions, billions, trillions, like what number is that that you get up to? Because it's such a big number, he's never, never thought of a number that big before. In fact, it's hard for us to, to grasp a number that big. I mean, can you, can you imagine anything that big? Well, this mathematician did us a favor. He, he gave a little illustration. He said, if you were to take a silver dollar and, and you were to actually take a bunch of silver dollars, in fact, if you were to take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and put those all over the state of Texas, you would fill the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. That's a lot of silver dollars. Some of you would like that many silver dollars. That'd be really nice. Now, if you were to take someone and, and blindfold them and then you were to take a silver dollar and you were to mark it with something. Let's just mark it with a cross to be consistent here. And then you were to go throughout the state of Texas. You had as long as you wanted to, to walk around and find a spot to drop that silver dollar. And then you, you took all the silver dollars across the whole state of Texas. And you just shuffled them up. You just moved them all over the place, okay? And then you took that person that you blindfolded. They have no idea where you went. And you say, you have as long as you want to walk all over the state, anywhere you want to go, but you have to keep the blindfold on. It's okay because you're just walking on silver dollars. You're not going to get hurt or anything. And you walk around blindfolded as long as you want. And eventually you're going to stop and you can dig through the coins. You can do whatever you want to do, but you're going to pick out one coin. And the chances that that person will pull out that one coin that you marked are the same chances of any one human being fulfilling those eight prophecies. It's, a, it's impossible. It's just the odds are, are astronomical of anyone doing what the Bible says the Messiah is supposed to do. Of course, there aren't only eight prophecies about the Messiah, though. There are dozens of prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. They're all over the place. They're all interwoven and connected, and there's all these things the Messiah is, is supposed to do. There are prophecies about his divinity. There are prophecies about the Magi being involved. There are prophecies about his time in Egypt, about his outreach to Gentiles, which is a strange thing for a Jewish person, about his extensive ministry in the Galilee area, about the miracles he will perform about him being rejected by his own people and being mocked and beaten, about being offered sour wine, about soldiers casting lots for his clothing, and many, many more. There are all of these prophecies in the Old Testament about what the Messiah is supposed to be. And so thankfully, this professor also said, well, let's find out what the probabilities of that are. And those probabilities, just in case you were curious, are 10 to the 157th power. And that, my friends, is a number that I don't even know how to make you grasp, because I have no grasp of it myself. I'm sure there's some way we could do it, but it's just astronomical. It's, 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 too, it's too high. The chances that any of these things could be fulfilled, that any eight of them could be fulfilled in one person are astronomical, let alone all the dozens and dozens of prophecies that are in the Old Testament. So what does this tell us? And why are we even talking about this on Christmas Eve? I'll tell you, the world does not want to admit that the Bible is incredibly unique. If you've studied the Bible for a long time, you may take it for granted, but compared to any other historical document that is out there, any other holy book that is out there, nothing even comes close to the level of interconnectedness and the cohesiveness that is throughout this, this book. It's, it's absolutely unbelievable. All the connections and the cross-references and the fulfilled prophecy, and, and honestly, it's led many scientists over the years who have studied this 
to convert from atheism or agnosticism to Christianity just because when they looked at all the evidence and gave it a fair evaluation, they had to say, this is, this is too unbelievable. It's, it's so incredible. How, how could it not be true? The evidence is just overwhelming if you give it a fair evaluation. And Jesus actually said of all these prophecies, after he rose from the dead and he was walking on the road to Emmaus with those couple of guys, he said, wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took through them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Man, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? To be a part of that conversation and hear from Jesus all the things in the Old Testament that pertain to him. We, we know what some of them are. We may not have a full understanding of all of them. And a little bit later, he appeared to his disciples and he said, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's the stuff we just went through. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Man, pray that God opens your mind to understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written, he said, that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. This message that he's about to say, not what he just said, what he's about to say, this message, it was written, would be proclaimed to all the nations, not just Israel, not just in Judaism, but all the nations, the Gentiles too, but beginning in Jerusalem, here is the message. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. There's forgiveness of sins for all who repent. And then he says, you are witnesses of all these things. What are they witnesses of? They're witnesses of the, the completion of this unbelievable amount of prophecy about the Messiah. They have now seen all of these things come true in their lifetime. They've seen it with their own eyes. They are witnesses of, of the prophetic mystery being revealed and, and coming to its amazing conclusion in Jesus Christ. It's an incredible thing that they, that they witness. But the point is, they're not just supposed to keep it to themselves. It is a message that is supposed to be carried on. The, the whole point of this prophecy was not just to show that God knew what would happen and that God is right, although certainly those things are true. But the point of this whole operation was to reunite people with God, to allow for forgiveness of sin, sin, that thing that separates us from God, that creates a barrier between us and God so that we can't have a relationship with him, so that we can't know him, so that we can't live the, the fulfilling life that he wants us to have. By knowing him, we can't do it because of the sin that's in our lives. And Jesus came to create a bridge between us and God so that would be no more. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent, he says. This is the message that's going to go out to everybody, to all the nations. Not forgiveness of sins if you work them off. Not forgiveness of sins if you do enough to make up for it. If you do enough good to outweigh the bad. Forgiveness of sins if you repent. What does it mean to repent? It means to recognize that my sin is wrong and to turn away from it. It's to turn away from our sin, to turn to God, to say, I can't do this on my own. There's nothing I can do. I turn from my sin and I turn to God and God, I need you to save me. Jesus came so that we could have a relationship with God because someone had to cover the cost for our sin. So he came and died after living a perfect life to sacrifice himself so that we could be free. Over 2,000 years ago, what we celebrate tomorrow is not just that he was born, but it's what came next, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, that he made a way for us to be connected with God, to have our sin taken away and his righteousness given to us. 
So the question for us today and for, for all of you is do you believe what Jesus did for you? Do you have the relationship with God that Jesus came to provide for you? Do you believe that he came to this earth as a baby, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again from the dead to make a bridge between you and God? This, this man who fulfilled everything the prophets said about him, who made a plan so that he could enter this world, become one of us, and die for us. You know, the Bible tells us that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. We confess with our mouths, we acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what that means. We acknowledge he is the Lord, he is the Messiah, he is the only one who can save. He's the one that all those prophecies are fulfilled in. And we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. That raising from the dead is it's something impossible. It's something none of us can do. And so it means that God has all the power, even power over death. And when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we acknowledge him as our Messiah. And we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that he has the power to save us even when we cannot. The Bible says that he gives us new life in him. We become a part of his family. The separation between us and God is broken down and we now are restored to God. It doesn't mean we'll be perfect, but it means God sees us as perfect because Jesus Christ takes away the payment for our sin because he paid for it on the cross. And God sees us through the eyes of Jesus, through the lens of Jesus, as if we have his perfection, as if we have his righteousness. We get that exchange on both ends, the removal of our sin and its payment and the receiving of Christ's righteousness, the Messiah who was prophesied about, who came to make it possible for us to have forgiveness of sins. Hey, if you have... If you've never made that decision to trust in Jesus, I can't think of a better time than Christmas Eve to do it. I mean, you could wait until tomorrow, Christmas morning. That'd be pretty cool too, but why wait, right? Today is the day to say, I am gonna trust in Jesus, believe in what he did for me because I wanna have a relationship with God. I wanna spend eternity with him. I understand that I'm a sinner. You can pray today. You can let God know who you are, what you've done, Accept his payment for your sins and his forgiveness of your sins and ask him to save you. And he promises to do that. If you'd bow your heads with me right now, I just want to pray for us as we close here. Jesus, as we remember tomorrow your birth, help us to not forget all of the amazing things that led up to it, the incredible prophecies over and over again, just remarkable that any of these were fulfilled and yet they were all fulfilled in you. I pray for anyone who does not know you as Savior, that maybe tonight would be the night that they recognize, wow, this is, this is overwhelming. This is incredible. This has to be true. And that they would put their trust in you. God, I pray for those of us who maybe have known you for a long time, that tomorrow would not just be a day of presence and food and friends and family, though it should be that as well, but that we truly would remember the sacrifice you made for us, the reason we celebrate this season. It's not just your birth. It's your death and resurrection as well, fulfilling all those prophecies that no one else could do. Lord, we thank you for doing it for us. We pray that you would help us to be part of those witnesses that share it with other people, that tell other people about you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.